0: As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30 for 30% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market.
1: this is the average conservationist podcast brought to you by outdoor class and in partner with two percent for conservation outdoor class is the new single source of premium outdoor education from trusted knowledgeable experts for hunters committed to improving their skills outdoor class is the only subscription-based e-learning platform that provides unlimited access to video lessons from the world's most respected experts covering topics across a hunter's entire journey learn from industry leaders like Corey jacobson Randy Newberg, Remy Warren, and other prominent personalities and organizations. Sign up today and use code average to save 20%. 2% for conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% Happy Hump Day, everyone. Welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I have with me Justin Madron, and Justin is the owner and founder of 2% Certified Farther Afield Design. <clears throat> um, actually, before I get into um, today's episode with Justin, I uh, just want to apologize. I am extremely under the weather, um, have a terrible head cold, uh, amongst other things, uh, so if I sound a bit nasally... Uh, I apologize. Uh, Thankfully, this episode was recorded uh, prior to this, um, so there won't be the issue the entire time through, just uh, in the intro and uh, the exit as well. So, Justin, Farther Afield Design, Uh, what they do, um, they use geospatial data um, to actually perform uh, a bunch of different tasks. Um, They work with a bunch of different clients uh, ranging anywhere from uh, local government um, to help uh, draw and create um, new district lines for voting. Um, They can help companies, um, you know, make like static maps, uh, so to speak. Um, They use, they can help companies Uh, create uh, kind of like territory boundaries uh, for salesmen uh, or something along those lines. Uh, You know, really the um, amount of things that you can do with uh, geospatial data uh, is really endless. And that's one of the things that that Justin really likes uh, about what he does and why he started the company is just the the variety of things he gets to do, Um, you know, the companies he gets to help, uh, you know, not only... Um, some companies like I just mentioned but also nonprofits uh, as well he gets the, he goes into some pretty good detail on some projects that he's working on um, really uh, Justin growing up uh, in West Virginia uh, talks about you know what the outdoors meant to him you know how uh, you know where he grew up uh, the outdoors is really all there was to do so he spends a lot of time you know just learning to appreciate and love the the outdoors from a very young age. Um, and he knew that uh, when it came time to start his own company, um, giving back uh, to conservation was, was certainly something that was um, kind of uh, front and center, uh, first and foremost, uh, one of the things that he wanted to do once he was in that position. So, Uh, I am going to stop letting you guys listen to me uh, with this nasally voice, and I'm going to let you guys get right to it. So episode 108, yes, episode 108 with uh, Justin Madrin from Father Field Design. Uh, Before that, though, I'm going to tell you about some partners of the podcast. Uh, First off, Stone Glacier. Uh, If you haven't already, be sure to download the Stone Glacier app, uh, whether on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, Stone Glacier has a ton of awesome stuff. Um, regardless of, you know, your pursuit. uh, They have something that uh, is going to get you in the right direction. Um, Their packs are awesome. I've been running them for the last couple years um, and just can't say enough good things about it. Uh, So head over and check them out at StoneGlacier.com. Today's episode is also going to be brought to you by my friends over at Wild Rivers Coffee, Sammy and Marshall. Um, Wild Rivers Coffee is roasting in small batches so that they can ensure... Your coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Wild Rivers, as you know, is also a proud partner with 2% for Conservation, and they believe in preserving the wild places and wild things that bring all of us so much joy. That's why, with everything that they sell, a portion of those proceeds are being donated back to wildlife conservation and conservation organizations that are near and dear to them. So, head over to Wild Rivers Coffee Co. Dot .com grab your fresh roasted beans, a uh, ton of cool uh, sweet merchandise handmade mugs. Uh, subscribe today and you're going to save 10%. So again, head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com. All right, Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me, man.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, how's uh <clears throat> how's everything going on this uh, balmy Wednesday morning where you're at?
2: Um yeah, it's pretty nice here in Richmond, Virginia.
1: We've uh, we had a little reprieve from the heat.
2: And so um, yeah, this past weekend was beautiful, but starting to warm up now. We're starting to get that, you
1: know, central Virginia mugginess. Yeah, it's, uh, it feels like the same thing here. We, yesterday was just silly hot. I mean, obviously I don't like to complain about the heat because in the, you know, in the winter you're always like, man, I wish it were just a little bit warmer, right? And then it's always, you want what you can't have and, and with the seasons and whatnot, but I certainly love summer. But, you know, the the heat, the the really high heats that tend to come late July, early August, kind of those dog days of summer. Um, we've been getting a lot of that in, in June, which is where I mean, it was like 95 here yesterday, which is, you know, just kind of unseasonably warm for, you know, mid to late uh, June here.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about folks up your way, but, you know, I mean, growing up, my my grandparents didn't have air conditioning. Um, it's pretty commonplace for people not to have AC which seems crazy now.
1: Yeah, no, it really does because I I grew up not having AC in my home and then I think, gosh, it had to have been when I got to college, right? And you're you're in your dorm room and you can actually kick on the air and you're like, what is this? Like, is this how the (laughs) rich are living? Like with this nice central air and these, you know, not uh, sleeping without a a sheet or a cover or, you know, a blanket or anything at night and actually being able to, to get some sleep and not waking up every 10 minutes because you're just dripping in sweat
2: yeah i remember those days of you know it'd be like you know the midday people would just stop doing things you know everybody would kind of just you know get under a shade tree and you know hunker down for a couple of hours till the sun went down
1: yeah i mean i remember growing up with you know like box fans just set up on the floor mm-hmm. all throughout the house just to try to keep everything cool or or trying to uh it do as best as you could but you know really in hindsight all you're doing is just pushing that warm air around right you're not really cooling (laughs) yourself off yeah there's something uh
2: nostalgic about this saying the sound of those box fans going though you know like it
1: kind of takes you back to your childhood no you're absolutely right and i never even thought about it like that it but it now that you mentioned it though the, the box fan and there's other there's other little things right that as i get older like I'll smell something, and I think maybe for yeah. me, it, it smells that uh, really kind of transport me back to my youth. Like, um, you know, just you go out in the garage, and your dad's putzing around, or he's building something, or working on something. There's just those smells that just, no matter where you're at, what you're doing, it's like, boom, it, it just takes you right back there. And those are those are pretty cool things. I think uh, the outdoors certainly is uh, has a way to do that as well. Absolutely, hundred percent. So, before we get into uh, your company farther afield here, why don't you tell me a bit about yourself, Justin?
2: Yeah, um, so I grew up um, in the Appalachian Mountains of West Virginia um, in a county called Pocahontas County. And when people ask me where I'm from, I say Pocahontas County. I I refer to the whole county um, because nobody has any clue about some of these small towns in, in West Virginia. So, I actually grew up in Bartow, West Virginia. Which is near the Snowshoe Ski Resort, um, so most people know where where the Snowshoe is. It's a pretty pretty big ski resort now. It's owned by West and um, yeah, it a lot of visitors a of year. But it's it's the third largest county in West Virginia, um, and is actually littered with public land. Um, I think about 350 thousand acres of, of national forest and public land. So it really is a an outdoor mecca. Um, it's very sparsely populated, and being the third largest county in in the state, um, it's it's very few people live there, which is um, which is amazing. I mean, the they access the public lands, and the the fishing and hunting opportunities and skiing opportunities, like we were, were talking about earlier, are are fantastic. So um, I grew up there um, my my whole entire life until I went to college at uh, West Virginia University, where I studied landscape architecture and had big dreams about going and designing uh, big outdoor spaces and, you know, being outside. And um, I, I really fell in love at that point with um, with technology and, be, and, and site design and, and being able to analyze and look at places without ever setting foot there. Um, and so, you know, working with spatial data and making maps really kind of um, I grew up using maps and, you know, like every other kid in in the car, you know, helping your dad navigate what using an <laughs> Atlas, um, you know, it, it was always fun. And so, you know, to, to be able to make those, um, and to think about, you know, space as a, a way of making decisions really, um, really excited me and drove me to, well, that and the, you know, the economic crash of, of um, you know, around 2008, the job market being terrible, I thought it'd be a good idea maybe just to go to grad school and, uh, you know, kick the can down the road a little bit of, of the job market. And so I ended up here in um, in Richmond, Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth University at um, the School for Environmental Sciences where I studied remote sensing and um, geographic information systems. And so there I really dove deep into the, the spatial analysis and um, the kind of the, the mapping and um, environmental science side of, of the GIS world. And I I kind of brought it full circle and and looked at the Cheat Mountain Range and the reforestation of, of red spruce um, back home where I grew up, which is a kind of a, a keystone species for a lot of things like flying squirrels and Cheat Mountain salamanders and and things that was heavily logged in the early 1900s, and they just about completely um, logged the entire red spruce stand in that area, which is the the largest uh, red spruce stand south. Uh, it's it's the most southern range of red spruce in the U.S., which is pretty interesting. Um, and so, I, I used uh, satellite imagery and remote sensing and uh, spectral signatures to pull out information from old satellite imagery and looked at basically the reforestation. Um, a lot of environmental and climate um, theses and, and research is actually looking at devastation and uh, mine was actually somewhat positive in that there, you know, it's rebounding from the heavy logging in the early 1900s and that red spruce is coming back in that area. So that's what I did in grad school and um, stuck around and um, now I'm, I work at the University of Richmond, but um, back to the back to the the red spruce um story is that when i was when i was in doing that research or i I really started to see connections between you know forest management um and you know species and wildlife right and that in that really that connection that was not you know my area of expertise and research but you know being a longtime hunter and spending a lot of basically my whole entire life outdoors and, um, coming from a family of, of hunters. And, um, I would say, um, kind of average conservationist, right. Um, <laughs> Good you plug. know, I, I started, yeah, I started to see, um, yeah, I started to see, you know, I guess connections that I've been taught and, and heard growing up. And, um, you know, as I got older, started to really kind of see where, yeah, you know, things have have changed a lot right in the impacts of of human development even in a place that has such a large swath of um public land
1: yeah that's uh that's a really cool story in terms of kind of how you got from point a to point b and and everything that went in between you know when you were you were talking about the the mapping and stuff um you know how you know, most little kids, you know, if you're on a road trip or you're going somewhere with mom or dad, like, yeah, you have, you have this atlas out, right? I mean, cause that was, that was how we navigated back then. And mm-hmm. a couple things. One, I feel like that's kind of a lost art form, just being able to, to read a map. Right. I mean, I know that there's, um, you know, if you just look like at the gosh, what is it? Like the Rand McNally, is it Rand McNally? Is that who makes all the Rand McNally? Yeah. 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 They the make old, all the, cool. yeah, yeah. The, exactly. And, I remember uh, as a young kid, we would go out west a lot, like uh, fly fishing or, or camping or stuff like that. And this is probably late '90s, uh, yeah, late '90s, early 2000s. And GPSs may have been a thing. I, I can't really recall. I know we didn't have one, so we had literally the the 50 states on you know the big, probably 11 by shoot, uh, I don't know, I, I don't even remember how big they were, but you know the the oversized atlas is there. And that was yeah. how we used to get from Michigan to Montana or Colorado or everything like that. I mean, you didn't have the foresight to know if there was an accident uh, with Waze or Google Maps or anything like that. So if you wound up in a traffic jam, it was, well, here we are. There's there's really no way we're going to get around it. But I recall being a, a co-pilot, quote unquote, for my dad mm-hmm. because we would, uh, on those trips, we would just drive through the night. Um, you know, usually, you know, your parents would alternate, you know throughout the course of the day one would get some sleep and then you know the nighttime would come and all the kids are sleeping in the back seats or or whatever and uh i was super gung-ho i was like all right dad me and you we're gonna take this thing through the night here he's like all right like i remember (laughs) we stopped he got like a cup of coffee he bought me like a slurpee or something he's like all right Mm -hmm. you know just keep your eye on the road keep your eye on the map like we should be on this this road this highway for a while and i think i lasted like maybe a half hour before I completely zonked out. <laughs> out. Yeah. And I wake yeah. up and the sun's coming up. He's like, you know, where are you at co-pilot? He's like, you're the worst <laughs> co-pilot easily that I've ever had. And, uh, it, just thinking about things like that and, and mapping and, and to see where it's at now is, is really a pretty cool thing.
2: It is. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the, the birth of Google maps really changed a lot of that, but, uh, uh you know, to that point you had to pay attention a lot more, right? Like thinking about traveling, like you couldn't just kind of, you know, plug it in and just let it go. And it it would yell at you when it's time to turn, you know, you, you had to keep track of exits and you were, you know, hyper aware of, of, you know, things that were coming up and markers and, you know, points of interest and things like that. Um, yeah, I think maybe a little more present
1: on those trips. Oh yeah, absolutely. And without, um, I mean, gosh, I remember we didn't even have cell phones at that time. Yeah. Uh, Or at least, you know, I mean, there was probably like car phones, you know, the ones you'd like plug into the bag phone. Yeah, exactly. And so you had those. But again, we didn't have one of those. So you you found ways to occupy yourself in the vehicle. And a lot of times that was, you know, reading books or magazines or or something like that, or listening to like a Walkman or something like that. But it was Mm -hmm. certainly you were much more present, you know, like seeing seeing the sites, I mean, I remember driving across, you know, states like Kansas, Nebraska, Nebraska specifically sticks out to me just because of how flat it is and how the topography never seems to change until you get maybe, you know, real far west into Nebraska, You start to get over to the, uh, you know, the Colorado border and it changes slightly, uh-huh. but still not all yep. that much. Right. And yeah. You know, we, we go, I've gone on a road trip with my uh, young kids a few summers back and, you know, we had everything under the sun to keep them occupied for, you know, eight <laughs> hours a day because we weren't driving through the yep. night. And part of me wanted to be like, no, you're not going to get anything. You're going to look out the window. You're going to yep. not enjoy this and you're just going to take it for what it's worth.
2: Yeah, start. You try to find every license plate from every state. You know all those
1: crazy games you used to play in a kid, as a kid to occupy your time. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you said you grew up um, in a family of hunters and, and outdoorsmen and everything. So is that really, I guess, where you got your introduction? Was at a pretty early age there?
2: Yeah, well, I would say I would say my my mother's side um, was a family of hunters, um, actually. My dad was never really a big a big hunter. He hunted because of of my mom's father who was a huge outdoorsman. He owned a trout dock on the White River in Arkansas. Um would go up there every summer and, and run the trout dock and you know, had, had traveled to Canada and Maine and, and done some big big hunting expeditions and um was just I would say a a, a true outdoorsman um in every right. Um, and, and unfortunately he passed before I was of age to, to go hunting, but, you know, the stories and everything really, you know, inspired me to, you know, I always looked up to him, even though I was, I was younger when he passed and didn't really know him too well. Um, but I really attribute my cousin to, to get, to getting me into hunting and his father was not much of a, a hunter either. So I would say we both kind of, you know, he was older than me by about 10 years. And so we, we kind of figured it out on our own and um you know growing up where we did um you know it was it was something you you know a lot of people did right and so um there wasn't much else to do so talking about you know what did people do if they didn't kind of hunt and ski in these areas i'm not really sure because there there was not if you didn't really like the outdoors um it was, it'd probably be tough to find the entertainment, um, cause we were, you know, 45 minutes or so from a movie theater or really any big stores or anything like that. So, you know, we, we spent most of our time outside hunting and, um, you know, flanking around with 22s and pellet guns and, and things like that. So, I mean, I, I started, you know, squirrel hunting when I was probably 12 or so. And then, um, you know, got into to deer hunting and, um, as I, as I grew older and, um, you know really I would say really started to fall in love with hunting as as I entered probably late late kind of high school into, into college to be honest um, I, I, you know deer hunting in a uh, in a stand um, in, a, in a in a stand in the tree for eight hours a day almost kind of ruined me from hunting I, I'd say almost <laughs> that, was, that, was a, that was a deflection point in my life where I you know I was probably very close to, to giving up on a cold a couple you know, freezing cold, snowy days, sitting in there for eight hours, not seeing a thing. Um, but I realized that that's, you know, that's not all of hunting and that, you know, nobody's telling you, you have to go do that. Um, so yeah. So, you know, I'd say, uh, you know, definitely, uh, grew up hunting most of what what I can remember most of, of my life. Um, but you know, I think really got interested into it around, around college and, um, and really over the last five years, um, have, let's be re- reinvigorated by, by bird hunting. And, um, yeah, I've kind of, you know, head over heels for, for, uh, rough grouse hunting. I mean, that's, that's, if I could pick one thing, that would, that would be it.
1: Yeah. That's, uh, if your upbringing. I mean, gosh, it's, it's so similar to mine. I mean, even down to the, you know, what you would, well, one, if you weren't, you know, kind of, dinking around outside it in some way shape or form like what were you going to do right I mean what yeah, exactly. what was there yeah. to do and it's uh it's funny how so I I got into to to the outdoors pretty early uh, I mean again it was you know my dad was a a very big outdoorsman I mean he you know everything from fly fishing to to, you know, whitetail hunting, to bird hunting, to duck hunting. I mean, he he kind of did it all. And So I was exposed to a lot of different things at a young age. And then, you know, I got into high school and and into college and sports really took over for me. I just, I didn't have time. Mm-hmm. I was playing, you know, three sports in high school, which one kind of bled into the next, into the next. And then summer rolled around. And, you know, obviously there's, there's fishing in the summer. But, you know, I was more interested at that time of, you know, hanging out with my friends. And, you know, I, I had a job. So doing those things... And but then once I got into college, I just I didn't have any time because of sports, and I kind of there was probably I would say uh, a five year gap in there where I wasn't doing much of anything, um, just yeah. because of, of sports and school. And you know, I, I I don't regret you know what I was able to do in college with sports and everything, but I regret the time that I missed with my dad in that because yeah. that was like his peak. You know, he was gosh, you know, late forties, uh, at that point. Yeah. And, you know, he's kind of in his prime, you know, my sister and I were both in college out of the house. So he had, you know, a bunch of time to do whatever he wanted, uh, in terms of, yeah. you know, fishing and, and hunting and what and whatnot. And, you know, he's, he has since passed, unfortunately, but you know, it's, it's funny how in the moment you don't necessarily realize how good you have it or, you know, the, yeah the the knowledge that's you know kind of right there at your fingertips now I know you know you said with your your grandfather that he passed kind of you know before you were eight before you were of age and and you had to you know learn a lot of these things on your own and and that's kind of how I felt once I got into my um, you know mid to late 20s and, and really started to to ramp back up into things is I had to figure a lot of this stuff out on my own and everything that I used to just take for granted because I could, you know, use a phone call away or, you know, we'd go yeah. out on the water or in the woods and you can just ask all these questions. And, um, yeah, it certainly uh, makes you much more self-reliant in those situations.
2: Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point and it, it brings up kind of mentorship in, in the outdoor world and, and hunting, right? And, I mean, how how crucial that is, you know? I mean, thinking about just, not getting discouraged and success and just, you know, having somebody, a mentor, right. To say like, you know, Oh, this, you know, yeah, this is a tough season or, you know, here's a good spot or here's something to look for. Like those things that you just in the moment don't really appreciate, but that, you know, really, um, help push your, your hunting knowledge and, you know, your, your comfort in the outdoors. Right yeah um for to say if you, if you don't have that it's i mean i see there is a barrier of entry i think to to hunting and, and things like that because you know if, if you don't grow up in that world um it is hard just to you know go out there and do it yourself um and it's you know it's a, i think it's a confidence thing especially if you're younger
1: you know oh yeah as a as a younger male when you feel like you're kind of on top of the world uh, in in some regard, yeah. and you know no one can tell you anything. You know you you feel like you just you know everything when the truth, yeah. the fact of the matter is you know absolutely nothing, nothing. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's and very humbling. Yeah, it is. It's very humbling, and yeah, that that mentorship is is huge, and it's um, it's hard for for young males. You know, I think that's probably just kind of been ingrained in a lot of people. Uh, a lot of males growing up is, you know, asking for help can be a bit difficult, and especially when it comes to to hunting, right, and, and the outdoors, because yeah. you don't want to seem, you know, stupid or or, or, or I feel like you're yeah. going to ask silly questions and stuff like that. But man, what I found is so many people want to to mentor, you know, new hunters Absolutely. or or someone who maybe did it when they were young and then just for whatever reason didn't have that interest uh, long term. Now they're in in their adult life and and they have that interest. They want to get back out there, but they don't even know where to start, right? And yeah. I think for a lot of people as well, they get to a certain point um, in kind of their their hunting journey where it certainly becomes much more about uh, the experience, getting other people involved as opposed to their success. You know what I mean? Hundred percent. Yeah, your 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 reward system and that, or your motivations change. Yeah, big time, big time. So, all right, we've kind of laid the groundwork a little bit here in terms of, you know, what the outdoors looks like to you, kind of your, your background and your past a little bit. So obviously the reason that we're able to sit down today is, is your business farther field design. So tell Mm -hmm. me about that.
2: Yeah. So, um, I guess, well, I started in 2020, um, and this was really the, you know, the height of the pandemic, um, I was, you know, fortunate enough to to work from home. Um, I work um, at a university as my my main job, and um, we we're lucky enough to work from home. Um, I'm a I'm one of those people that can't sit still. I attribute that to to my mother. Um, you know, we're always <laughs> always doing something, and so you know, for me, um, COVID was was tough because I'm. Yeah. I to mean, you know, a lot of extracurriculars and, you know, work. And so I, I didn't have, aside from hunting really much, um, to do or, you know, I, I thought, I thought I didn't have much to do. Um, and so I've always dreamed of, of owning my own business and, um, and, and having some connection to the work I do to conservation and, um, the outdoors and wildlife. And so, the idea came um, farther afield uh, be to kind of connect my two passions, which is um, technology and design, and, and my creative side, and into um, yeah conservation efforts and uh, in the outdoors. Um, and I wanted a way to to give back, right? To to make you know a difference and to, to help um, in, in any, way, any way I could. So um, I was lucky enough to to find Two Percent for Conservation. Um, which is a fantastic organization, and they they really provided that infrastructure, at least for me, that I needed to, you know, ha- I guess have that accountability and that confidence to, right, to say, you know, hey, like I actually am doing something to help conservation. It's just not me saying, you know, I'm going to give some money here or there. Um, and so for me, that was really once I found them, that was really kind of my final push to to connect the two. Um, And since then, you know, it's been, it's been amazing. I mean, I've, I thought it was going to be just kind of a, you know, a pandemic one year thing. I would do some side work if, you know, if anybody was interested and, um, it's really morphed into, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm really busy between my, my day job and then working, you know, um, you know, I'd say more than part time, um, (laughs) on, on my business, um, you know, I've grown. I've grown my team. Um, I've grown partners and clients that I've worked with, and um, it's been fantastic. And it's been a way that I could, you know, contribute uh, money and um, time to organizations like the Rough Grouse Society and, um, you know, uh, back um, backcountry hunters and anglers, um, and the White Oak Foundation. Um, and, you know, I think hopefully some others down the road as as time goes on. And so, um, yeah, it's been it's been fantastic. And it's really been a way for me to work on projects that I are completely outside of what I do in my normal day job um, and um, challenge me, you know, professionally um,
1: as well. Yeah. So so tell me. If you can, like some of the the types of, of organizations or, or companies that you're that you're working with with Farther Field, and, and what some of that work looks like.
2: Yeah, so um, Farther Field is a is a um, geospatial solutions company. So what that means is basically we we help people um, help them solve problems geospatially, right? So everything happens somewhere, right? And so everything really has spatial data or spatial information attached to it. Right. And so because of that, you can ask really interesting questions like, you know, things that overlay on top of each other or, you know, um, things that are a certain distance of each other. Um, so you can ask questions that you couldn't ask necessarily, maybe say in a spreadsheet or a database or something like that. And so we, I've helped a lot of several companies, um, over the last couple of years, um, on various projects. So, um, One is um, KSB, which is a um, wastewater pump and uh, manufacturing company. And so they have a bunch of client data and uh, regional sales reps, and um, they want to look at, you know, whose customers fall within each sales rep, right? And so when they're out on the road, they can say, oh, okay, you know, I have a couple clients within 30 miles of me. Um, they can click on a map, get that information, and contact those customers. So things like that. Um, I've done a lot of work with the, the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy and their Center for Geospatial Solutions. And um, shout out to, to Bruce Roberts Robertson, um, who is their uh, Director of Strategic Partnerships. Um, they do a lot of land um, conservation, um, big land conservation group. Um, and they do some amazing work all over all over the U.S. and, and world. Um, and she wrote the book on um, conservation using GIS, geographic information systems. And so, I've worked with her and several of her partners on um, various projects looking at um, park equity. Um, we've done things for uh, nonprofit foundations, um, you know, other land land conservation groups. Um, and then most recently, um, you know, we had the 2020 census come out, um, and with that, um, came redistricting. So I helped, um, a local organization here, the Virginia civic engagement table, um, look at, um, redistricting across Virginia, um, from a whole bunch of different stakeholders and, um partner groups that, that they have. And so we drew some maps based on some needs that they were interested in showing and submitted those to the, to the, um, the commission and then the Supreme court, um, during the redistricting process. So a whole slew of, of, of different companies and uh, outcomes there. Um, some conservation, some not, um, but you know, in the end tying, you know, that kind of back to to helping organizations that i still strongly about.
1: Yeah, I mean, redistrict, redistricting, I mean, heck, that's I mean, that's a big deal, right? Especially uh in it terms is. of, you know, how votes are are allocated and and the the weighted system, of every, I mean, just without getting into the whole political side of things. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. redistricting is a, is a really big deal, right? And to be able to to use uh your technology to to aid in that in some way shape or form i mean that's i mean that's making a a really big difference and probably one that i would imagine is hard to really put your finger on uh in the short term it is you know yeah it is and i mean you know it was it was really eye-opening to
2: you know listen to those you know different partners and community groups across virginia and you know listening to you know what you know um you know, issues that they found important and how they thought about how lines should be drawn. Um, And that's, I mean, for me, that's what I think is really exciting about the field that I'm in and the work that I do is that, you know, one project can be working, you know, on redistricting. The others could be looking at, well, how do we, you know, how do we place a park within a city to make it the most equitable for underserved communities, right? And I mean, those are two very different objectives, but all solved with using spatial data, right? And so that's what I, I found really exciting about just the work that I do and the profession that I'm in, and that I can, you know, I can do all these sorts of different solve all these sorts of problems um, across multiple different, you know, competing organizations and, and interest groups um, is is super exciting.
1: Yeah, and I would uh, I would tend to think that in your line of work and, and the, the services that you're providing is it's very neutral, right? Because it's all driven by, um, you know, the data, right. And you can't, you can't argue that, right. So it's, it's very easy to be unbiased in, in the, in the information that you're providing to, to these organizations.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really, that's a really good point you bring up because, um, yes, exactly i mean you know maps can definitely be used for for bad and um you know there's a there's a a a book um called all maps are lies right which is (laughs) which is kind of true right like you know we're we're synthesizing and aggregating from real life things on the ground that's what makes maps powerful right like you you're not you're you're selecting information at um you're pulling and picking certain information to make it legible and and help um, people infer some information. Right. If you, if you represented everything that ever existed, we couldn't interpret that. Right. Right. Um, So everything is somewhat um, deceptive. Right. But I think, yeah, as you know, I think that's to be an ethical map maker is, is super important. Right. And to be true to your point, be true to the data, right? Be representative of the data, not insert your own bias and things into that is, is really important because um, it is a powerful tool for making decisions, right? And a lot of companies and organizations make some important decisions based off that data. So, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's a great point.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, when I was uh, I was first looking at, at at your website and everything and trying to, you know, really wrap my head around what it is um, that Farther Afield does and and the technology that you guys have and, and how you're using it. I I first was trying to relate it to like a like your typical like mapping system, right? Like like Go Hunt, yep. for example, has their their mapping yeah. system. And it seems like there's there's certainly a certain element of that in in what you guys are doing, but you're you're much more refined, I guess, in in your approach and your you're taking that almost like two or three steps further and really honing down on specific areas or specific regions, um, for specific matters instead of, you know, maybe you're out in Colorado, right. And you're, you know, you're just focusing on your unit and you can see the topography and, and things like that. But that's really all that you get out of it, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it, it, it's certainly a tool, but what you guys are doing is, is actually applying that tool. Is that, is that, am I kind of correctly describing that?
2: I think you you nailed it there, right? So the the key is there is is a tool, right? And so, um, you know, go hunt on Like, I mean, those they're game that's game changers, right? I think at least from a hunter's perspective. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I mean, as a map lover, like I totally geek out um, <laughs> with those app- applications, right? But those applications are, I would say, somewhat of a, a refined version of of, um, you know google maps right it's it's kind of a a reference map, if you will right yeah. so a reference map that's serving a very specific purpose, which is hunters and outdoors men and women um, so um yeah to, to so that's a that's a web application that allows you to to turn on and off different layers um and explore data sets based on where you are right. And so I do some of that. Um, that is very user-driven, right, user-exploratory-driven. So the mm-hmm. user has to explore those. A lot of times um, in some of the work that I do is is um, I'm helping answer a question, right? And so back to the park example, you know, if if we're looking in the this, in this city of um, – in New York City, where is the best place to build a new park based on vacant lots, that exist under a half acre, um, that are within a 15-minute walking distance of um, population of higher populations of kids under 18, um, maybe, um, and a 15-minute walking distance of um, high poverty areas and underserved communities. Right. So, like, that's a very specific question that we're answering. Like, that's kind of site selection in yeah. that example. Um, And then those maps, right, and those things would um, basically visualize the answer, right, of where that would be or show possible opportunities. Um, So that's kind of more question-based, more than like a reference map. Um, But, you know, reference maps are are really important. And a lot of companies and organizations, um, to the point of the KSB one, was looking at customers and sales representatives, that kind of is a reference map for them, right? It's a very specific, you know, one for that company. Um, but they needed a web application that allowed them to pull up, you know, Hey, here's my sales region. Here's the States I cover. And here's the customers within, you know, and some filtering and queryability and things like that, which you get with like go hunting on, on X and things like that. Um, so there's a lot of kind of crossover. It depends on the, the users and the clients, um, question and problem that you're trying to solve um and so you know web well web development web technologies geospatial web technologies has exploded over the last 10 years right and has made um this technology more approachable and um and you know more usability right where we're used to that not foreign anymore for people to open up an application and um and to your point about reading maps, like people are pretty good at reading Google maps to find, you know, Oh, Hey, what's the, what's the best uh, Vietnamese restaurant in the area? Right, right. Right. Um, that, that's a little more common now than say if somebody was, to, you know, print out like a road atlas and say, Hey, get from a to B. <laughs> um, so we've, I think we've kind of traded one for the other. And so people are, are a little more used to using web applications now to, to pull information. So that, that makes things easier um, from a from a design perspective, and from a um, you know in the field I'm in, it's it's, it's not a hard sell, and um, people can kind of jump in pretty quick and start pulling information from from those applications.
1: Yeah. Now, with uh, first off, I mean, I, I guess one of my questions is, I mean, do you just have like a bunch of maps? various maps like playing around your house or in your office or anything like that or are you (laughs) like are you old school in that sense or do you i mean are you just Uh, like so kind of technology driven that like you you have maps like saved or, or things like that just on your computer
2: yeah so it's really you know the the making paper maps anymore like printed static when i say paper maps i mean like kind of static maps like I mean, that could even be like a P- PDF or you know just a image. I would send somebody is happening less and less. I mean i I enjoy making static maps and you know those kind of paper maps, but they are very flat, right? right. Um, there is and, and there's added challenges that come from that, right? Versus say you know something like uh, Onyx or Go Hunt or Google Maps, where the user can pull all this information and, and ask multiple questions at a time, right? With a static map and a paper map, you have to do all of that communication in one go, right? It has to say everything that you think it should say, right? In one, um, in one dimension, basically, right? There's no zooming, there's no clicking. Um, all that information has to display kind of in a snapshot, if it, in a picture, if you will, um, from, from a map. So, you know, I, there's a couple organizations that want some static maps, right? Because they're putting them in reports and, and things like that, which I think makes a lot of sense because they're presenting these, to, you know, um, board members or they're going out for funding or things like that, right? Where they need, um, some visuals, right. To help kind of make their point about, um, you know, a problem they're trying to solve. But, I would say for the most part things are leaning towards web applications, right? People want to be able to um embed things in their website. They want to, you know, be able to click on things and have pop-ups and you know they want more interactivity. Um because you know, I think we're we're all becoming more used to to dealing with those types of of maps uh, more so. But I mean, of course, yeah, I'm still a fan of the, you know, the old maps. I mean, I love old Topo maps, right? I right. mean, the thought of, like, putting down a Topo map and scouting out, like, a hunting um, area, I mean, you know, I'll, I would say what I would probably do, what I usually do, is I do X first to do my e-scouting, and then, um, you know, I love, you know,
1: pulling off some Topo maps and just,
2: yeah, you know, can I get from here to here?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you even incorporated the, uh, kind of the, the Topo design uh, in your logo, which I thought was, yeah. which I thought was super cool, uh, as well. I mean, cause when it comes to like, uh, like static maps, like you were talking about, what I've always wanted to do is, um, like, have have a map that I can like put in my office in and have it have some type of like, um, you know, significance to it, right? Whether it was, yeah. you know, where I shot my first deer or caught my first fish or you know maybe if I go out west and I you know I'm able to to shoot a bull or you know a muley or something like that and and just to kind of remember that right because I think uh, a map just it, even just even a static map just tells such a story yep. right because yeah you know if someone walks into your office or into your home and there's like just this this static map of you know just a, a piece of land it's like it, it's it's kind of a conversation start right it's like well why do you have this, 100%. why do you have this map on your wall? Like, tell me about that. And it's like, well, grab a beer. Cause it's going to be a bit right. Like, cause, cause yeah. there's going to be a great story that comes along with it. And, uh, yeah, having, having maps, I think is just a, is a really cool thing, right? It's, it's, it just, it tells such a story, um, regardless of, of what the event was.
2: No, hundred percent. I mean, we're, we're visual beings, right? Yeah. And so we've been, we've been using visuals and and drawings and depictions to help tell stories for, well, since, since the creation. Right. Right. Um, and you, you see cave paintings, right. And they're, they're telling stories. And so, you know, that's, that's a really big piece of, of map making. Right. And, um, and just visualizations in general, right. Is the storytelling component behind them. And that's, that's where, I mean, in my opinion, some of the best people who are doing that work is, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post. I mean, their graphics teams and the way that they use maps and visuals to help tell a story in photography, National Geographic, right, is, is doing a lot of great work in this, too. Um, is this really um, impressive, right, that digital storytelling, um, which I think is, uh, in my opinion, kind of that next frontier, right? It's not just maps. It's maps, it's photography, it's good journalism, it's good storytelling, right? It's it's captivating an audience because we're we're so used to getting just a flood of information, it's really hard for us to start picking out what's important. And so, you know, adding that storytelling component to it is is crucial. And to your point of like that map on the wall, right? You are that storytelling piece, right? Yeah. You are the the guy in the cave right pointing at your (laughs) at your drawings telling your hunting story I mean right it's really not that much different
1: it's really not
2: you know um it's a little more technologically advanced right but it's it's basically the same concept yeah the Um, foundation
1: is the same 100 percent. yeah yeah no that's uh that's interesting so what does kind of like a a typical, I guess, timeline for a project look like it. Is that, I mean, is there typical, is everything just that much different that, you know, one maybe takes a month or one takes you know, eight weeks or what does that look like?
2: Yeah. Um, So, you know, with the redistrict doing one, that was a pretty tight, tight timeline. We had about a month to um, go out, solicit feedback, create maps, go through some iterations and we had some pretty hard deadlines to submit those, right. For, um, for, you know, for the committee and for the Supreme court for, for thought. Um, so that was, you know, that was like a month turnaround time. Um, and I'll never forget I was up in, I was up in your neck of the woods in Michigan, um, in the middle of, um, sharp tail grouse country taking a conference call talking about, (laughs) Um, redistricting in the middle of some farmer's field while we're, we're chasing sharp-tailed grouse. So this talk about full circle, Yeah. Right? like um, it, I'll never forget that project. Cause I was, I remember I was, I was in the middle of this beautiful field um, with my shotgun, taking a conference call um, about, about redistricting. So that was a very tight turnaround. And, you know, I, I usually don't like to take conference calls when I'm hunting, but um, in that case, that was, you know, that was a, I was a nail biter, but most are, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty upfront with folks because I am, you know, at this point, this is my kind of side business. And so, um, you know, things take a little slower than normal, but you know, I'm, I'm usually, and I love working with nonprofits. I mean, um, I've worked with some corporations as well, but you know, nonprofits are very, um, they're just, you know, they have a little, little, um, more generous timelines and are not as, um, yeah, I should say under the, under the gun, if you will, um, sometimes for, for deliverables. Um, and it's, it's more of a, you know, collaborative process.
1: Yeah. Um, Much more of a partnership
2: with those. those. Yeah. Um, you know, so I I would say most of them easily run, um, you know, several months depending on the, the scale. Um, if we're talking about, you know, building a whole web application, um, Those, you know, those will usually run several, several months, um, because a lot of it's just building up the infrastructure to make all that happen. You know, all the hosting and, um, the technology stack that's needed just to, you know, just to have things, you know, ready, um, data collection is the big one, um, data has become more accessible now than ever before, but, um, you know, it's still, you know, filtering through, um good data, bad data, right. Data that they're looking for data that they may have collected that they don't really know what to do with. And so, um, it's fun. Like each one's kind of like a, um, you know, I I have to get up to speed on kind of what they do, you know, uh, the data that they're looking at, you know, the way that they kind of operate. So it's, it's, you know, for me, it's a lot of just, um, you know, Getting into the groove and, and into the flow and the stream of things of how they kind of do you know do their work, um, so that I can help interpret the data kind of through their lens, right, and what they're after, and um, start to anticipate what they might want to look at and what questions they they want. Because a lot of a lot of organizations, a lot of companies, right, have never really dealt with spatial data before. I mean, they know how to handle data, but they don't really know like what questions they can ask from spatial data right? right? or what they can look at. And once they see the power of it, then the kind of the floodgate open, that can we do this? Can we do that? And so it's, you know, um, kind of, you know, reeling things in a little bit and kind of putting some parameters on and say, well, you know, here's an option that we could do. And so what I've, I've learned through this process is, um, you know, is and like, I'd say any design, um, you know, graphic designer, any, any, person in design work would probably, you know, say, yeah, you should have known this a long time ago, but, um, is, you know, is give fee constant feedback. Um, you know, I've, I've learned to kind of slow, slow my role, if you will, on pushing projects really far forward. Um, you know, I'll, I'll start with something very simple, kick it back to them. Right. And try to try to make that conversation. Cause what happens is you start teasing out what they're actually after, um, to, to some point. Um, So that's, yeah, I would say it definitely varies, um, from depending mostly on, are they after some static maps for a report or are they after something more kind of complex, like a web application that's going to be interactive and live on their website.
1: Right. So speaking of nonprofits, how was it, um, that you learned about 2% kind of in the process of, of starting farther afield? That's a great question, Marcus. Um, (laughs)
2: Did I find them on Instagram? I might've came across them on Instagram. Yeah, I think that was it. I think another brand that I follow mentioned 2% for conservation. And uh, I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I clicked on that and that's how I, yeah. And and this was during that time I was kind of thinking about, you know, doing some side work and creating a company. Um, So yeah, I think it, yeah I mean for all you know for all the grief and um and bad press that we give social media, there's some good things that come out of it like this conversation right yeah absolutely um, you know, so I think at least from the you know not to pivot on social media but the from the hunting world i mean i've I've got a lot of great connections out of you know just meeting people online. Um, and I think, yeah, and I think I, I found 2% for conservation just on, on Instagram, uh, one time and it was kind of right place, right time. Um, cause I was already contemplating you know, creating the company and, um, and how I was going to go about, you know, like, do I just say I'm going to give some money to organizations? You know, like, how do I, how do I actually do that? Um, which is exactly what their, their mission is. So,
1: yeah. And 2%. Yeah, I mean, I learned about two percent. I, gosh, I want to say, it was through uh, Sam Soholt. Um, he has uh, his company, uh, Public Land Teas, uh, and that yep. was, um, I think, I think I had maybe just started uh, my my company, The Average Conservationist. And it, it's funny because it's it's very similar in nature to what Public Land Teas is. I mean, not even comparable in, in scope of of what they've been able to do, but you know, selling, you know, apparel to, to help raise money for conservation. And I think it was, um, yeah, shortly after I had discovered public land tees and started my company, they had become 2% certified. And I was like, what is, what is 2% for conservation? Right. And then kind of the same story, you you start doing some investigative work, you start figuring out what 2% is all about, reached out to Jared. And I was like, yeah, Mm -hmm. this is, this is the mechanism that I need um, to yeah. really kind of help shape what I want to do, uh, with the company, with giving back, uh, and everything like that. And then that kind of, uh, morphed into, uh, the podcast, which is, you know, uh, kind of a whole long drawn out story. Uh, but yeah, we started, the, you know, partnering with 2%, uh, in terms of the, the podcast. So helping those 2%, uh, businesses and individuals get their stories out. Um, <clears throat> because, uh, you know, there's obviously if you, you know, looked at fishandwildlife.org, their website. There, you can see the the number of companies that um, there certainly is a bunch that are directly related to the outdoors, whether it's you know companies like Go Hunt or Stone Glacier, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. But then there's also a ton that you know. Uh, you know, kind of from the outside looking in have nothing to do with the outdoors other than, you know, whoever owns the company is a, is a passionate outdoorsman or outdoorswoman, and they see the need for, for giving back uh, the importance of giving back. So they decided to, um, you know, get the certification, uh, which is cool. And like you said, the, the point uh, or the point you made about, you know, the, the relationships and the connections that you've made, I mean, I've met so many incredible people throughout the course of, you know, two plus years of doing this, that, mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many people who I could call and, you know, just ask them some questions about something or, you know, they've invited me, uh, you know, to come to their state or their house, you know, their property to hunt uh, or anything like that. And I've, you know, certainly tried to return the favor uh, as much as possible, although Michigan's not exactly this uh, destination state for, you know, whitetail hunting or, or turkey hunting or anything like that. But yeah, it's certainly been a, an amazing experience thus far.
2: Yeah. And I think uh, to your point, I think you, you touched on a, a really important piece there is, you know, for me, I was like, well, I'm not directly connected to the outdoor, um, industry. Right. And so I felt kind of this, um, like an outsider, right. Like I, I want to give back, but I'm not really doing, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing you know, direct work for fish and wildlife or something like that. Right. So how do I do that? And I think, two percent really two percent for conservation really um gave me that confidence like yeah you can still do that right like do what you do um and you know give back like this you know i don't know why i thought i have i hesitated right i think before i found two percent for conservation yeah because of that
1: yeah and yeah they're I mean, they're great about the inclusion uh, of any and everybody Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the outdoors. And that's, I mean, that's one of the things, I mean, you know, there's a a boatload of of great conservation organizations out there that are made up of of great people. I mean, I think a lot of things, uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't know about 2% is it's two people. It's two people running the show there. And the amount of work that they do and the, you know, money that they help, other companies raise to give back to conservation is, I mean, it's incredible. I, I would, vent, yeah, I would venture to say that the amount of money that they're either directly or indirectly involved with raising for conservation, you know, is in the millions of dollars every year. And it's two people who have committed themselves to this that are just absolutely knocking it out of the park day in and day out.
2: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I would, I'd like to see that number 2 I bet I'd be, it probably. Yeah, we'd probably
1: be, minds would be blown. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the orgs, you, I think you kind of touched on them a few minutes ago, but some of the orgs that, uh, that you're giving back to through farther afield?
2: Yeah, so the biggest one for me is the, the Rough Grouse Society um, and American Woodcock Society. So that, that's my biggest one. Um, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, the West Virginia um, branch and then the White Oak, uh, foundation. Those are my three that I've, I chose, um, at least for these next couple years to, to support. Um, you know, for me, I think I wanted to get back to an organization like the rough grouse society, because that's my biggest, at least for me, my biggest hunting and outdoor passion is, is rough grouse. Um, and so, I mean, I, I see the effects of good habitat on, uh, rough grouse numbers, right? I mean, i I hunt in West Virginia and then I go up to Michigan every year. And the, the difference is, you know, um, you know, I've had, I've had, uh, I've been skunked on weekends and I've walked 25, 30 miles. Right. And then I've been to Michigan and I've had, you know, 35 flush days. Um, (laughs) and so, I mean, you know, the, there's all sorts of variables and, you know, I'm definitely no rough grouse biologist. Right. But it's, you know, a lot of it is habitat based and um, you know, there's just a big need for for habitat projects. And so, you know, for me, if I could um, you know, help make a difference in that regard and something that I feel passionate about and that I um participate in, right, that's for me that was going to be my, my biggest driver. And then second is backcountry hunters and anglers, right? I mean their whole mission is um public land access and I I Feel really strongly about that because I grew up in a place where you know my family didn't own a hundred acre farm right for me to hunt I mean I I was raised on public land basically I mean if you know I I hunted and fished and um you know black bear were goofed off right on public <laughs> land my whole childhood you know I mean it was basically like you know my land right I mean yeah. We, you yeah know, we treated it as such I mean we would you know, just go for hikes or, I mean, you know, you name it, just, you know, I mean, it was our, our playgrounds, if you will. So, you know, I, I know that, I, I know now that I was super fortunate to grow up in a place like that and have that access out my back door to, to public lands and not, that not everybody does have that, right? And that, um, you know, that's a that's a really important, um, I think, piece to getting more people involved in the outdoors and hunting. So, That's that's why that organization, and then the White Oak Foundation is doing great work um, in the habitat spaces as as well. So,
1: yeah. What about
2: you? What's your three awards?
1: Yeah, so so backcountry hunters and anglers uh, is certainly one. For a lot of the same reasons, right? I mean, I'm I'm fortunate enough now that uh, I have some some private land here in Michigan, uh, especially for like whitetail and turkey that I can hunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, all my fishing in Michigan is done here in, on public land on you know lakes and streams and everything. Um, the Michigan, uh, a local one, Michigan United Conservation Clubs, uh, which is just doing a ton of great work here in Michigan all the way around, um, working with a ton of different organizations. Um, you know, they work a lot on the legislative side of things, and partner okay. with a lot of, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, kind of the the run of the mill conservation orgs. Um, and it's a uh, an affiliate of the National Wildlife Federation, uh, the Michigan affiliate, and I think it, I think it's the longest standing. I'm going to screw this up, one of the longest or if not the longest standing um, conservation organization that's state conservation organization in the country. So they're doing uh, a ton. Yeah. So they're doing a ton of great work. Um, I've actually partnered with them uh, the last two years and created like a a collaboration shirt um, that we sell. And then then all the proceeds, uh, you know, for those are going back to MUCC to help them continue to further their mission. Um, and then the NDA, uh, I'm a big white, I love whitetail hunting. Um, it's what, you yeah. know, kind of some of my fondest memories growing up, um, are, you know, whitetail hunting with my dad. Uh, so that was another one that, that I'm giving back to. And you, you hit the nail on the head when you said finding those organizations, um, that are supporting things that you're most passionate about. Right. Because I think that's where yeah. you're going to get the most fulfillment in your time and your money when giving back is because, you know, like if, if you're, you know, grouse hunting, you know you know, two months, three months out of the year, however, you know, along the season and you can make it stretch out and everything. I mean, that's, that's where you want to have the impact. If you're taking grouse from yep. the woods, you want to be able to do things to help habitat so that, you know, those, the, the, the numbers stay strong with the birds yep. and, you know, that you can keep doing this for, you know, coming back to Michigan, for example, for, you know, years to come and, you know, maybe sometime down the road to bring your kids to Michigan. It becomes, you know, just this thing that you guys do every year and it's a, it becomes a family tradition and, you know, ways to ensure that that is possible is, you know, by, by donating your time and money. So that's, a uh, taking that approach, I think is, uh, is the best one for anyone looking to get involved in in giving back is just figure out what you're passionate about. There's tons of organizations. And if you're not sure, I mean, reaching out to, to someone like 2% for conservation, they can absolutely point you in the right direction.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I, and I, I'd be curious to ask you this question. Um, I feel like the word, not, not the word conservation, but the idea that, you know, um, you know, say your father or maybe your grandfather, my grandfather could help in conservation. Like it it was almost not treated as like, like, Oh, maybe I should do that. Like they, that was part of being an outdoorsman. Right. Like they maybe didn't give large sums of money. Right. But they were very in tune with numbers right, being good stewards, being ethical, right, like all of those things, the things that they could control in their little space, right, Um, which is, yeah, it's it's weird how that's kind of, um, I don't know if that's that's changed. I think that still goes on, but that is is conservation, right, in the small scale.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and that was one of the things I was going to ask you was, you know, how was conservation kind of relayed to you as a kid, right? Was it something, and it, and for me it was more leading by example, right? Like you just, yeah, it, like the word, gosh, I can't even remember like the, the actual word conservation coming out in conversations with my dad, right? Like it wasn't yeah, like, okay, yeah. Okay. Marcus, like this is what conservation is. You do this, you do that, you do this and then boom, you've, you've accomplished conservation. It, it wasn't, it wasn't like that, right? It was, you know, when we're out in the woods, like, whatever we bring, we take with us. If we see trash, we pick it up. You know, when, yeah. you know, we go out fishing and we're on the boat, you know, we make sure the boat is all cleaned up. When we pull it out of the water, that way nothing can fly out of the boat on the way home, nothing like that. There's mm-hmm. a trash can right here. Like, just those those things that, you know, as you get older, it's just, oh, well, it's just common sense, right? Like, that's just what we do. You know, we, we take care of the land and we leave things, um, you know the same if not better than what we found it and that's kind of how you do it and I'm finding now that I have young kids you know trying to explain to them you know just little things like picking up trash like if you see like we kind of live in like mm-hmm. this wind tunnel of a, of a subdivision so on trash day like for whatever reason everyone's trash that maybe doesn't quite make it in the the, the trash truck ends up like in our yard or in our cul-de-sac. So I'll take the kids out there uh, and we'll bring a garbage bag and we'll pick it up. And it's like, dad, why are we doing this? Well, yeah. because, you know, a bird or a squirrel or something could eat this mm-hmm. and then it could die because it's not supposed to be eating this stuff. So you have to, you know, you give it some context for sure. And I think those, those lessons taught at an early age, I think it really sticks with them uh, as they get older. And it, um, it just kind of creates, uh, a foundation, I guess, for, for an understanding of, you know, why, um, you know, wildlife and habitat is so important. Well, and I think it's a, it's a connection to the land,
2: right? And, yeah. um, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm thinking about that Aldo Leopold quote, quote, where, um, he's talking about like the dangers of not owning a farm. Um, like, one danger is uh supposing that breakfast comes from a grocery store, right? And the other that the heat comes from a furnace, right? It's like, it's a disconnection from our natural environment, right? And our natural lands. And I think that that all ties into conservation, right? Like if you don't have a connection to the land or, you know, you don't understand how, you know, where food comes from, or all that, right? How how a, a full life cycle works, right? If you're disentangled from that, you don't have any connection to it, right? So why right. save that, all right? Why why preserve that if you don't understand it, right? So um, well, I'm not sure where I was going with that, but like I, yeah, I think it's that to, to your point, right? It's like we're picking up trash because we, you know, we respect the land, we respect the wildlife, right? We want to keep this nice for. For now, for later, right? We want we want this to be, you know, pristine and usable, and not as just a resource, right? But as a, that's um, something that everyone could use. And kind of back to that public land thing, uh,
1: yeah, as well. Yeah, because I mean, talking about you know that connection, you know, when when talking to you know maybe friends of mine or you know neighbors or whatever, because of course I'm like one of only maybe two other, um, neighbors who I've had the chance to meet in my subdivision that actually hunt. Right. And you can actually have yeah. conversations with about it, but <clears throat> explaining to them that, you know, if you're, you know, let's just use the uh, example of whitetail. Cause it's just, it's an easy one. Like, you know, shooting, a, you know, making an ethical shot, uh, with a bow or with a rifle or a shotgun, whatever it is on a whitetail deer. I mean, the kind of the sad fact is like that's the best death that that deer is going to see right like because if if it gets old i mean there's you know predators there's disease um there's you know uh, a lack of food um you know mother nature Mm -hmm. is harsh right no matter how you slice it and you know uh, a bullet or an arrow uh, a well-placed bullet or arrow you know and that animal sometimes doesn't even know what hit them um you know and they're dying within 10 or 15 seconds i mean that's a much better way to go out for an animal than, you know, suffering through the winter and dying of starvation or getting hung up in a fence or, or something like that or being chased down by a pack of coyotes and then, you know, essentially eaten alive. Torn apart. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the hard things uh, I think for people who don't understand, uh, you know, why hunting is conservation is having those conversations and really kind of explaining to them, you know full circle because i don't think people um who don't hunt uh don't think about that right they don't think about you yeah. know how this deer died or how this this turkey died right i mean it's something else killed it right and yeah it's it probably was very very gruesome and brutal and you know it's it's just our way of it, it seems kind of counterintuitive um you know but you know, we care about these animals and these, you know, the, the strength and the health of the, of the herd and the population. And, and this is what, what needs to be done.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know,
1: as, as hunters, we, we, that should be
2: our charge, right. Is to not, is to, is to help. I mean, yeah, I'd just be right to your point. People just don't understand. I mean, I think I take for granted sometimes of where I grew up and the lifestyle that I've been able to live and that everyone has been exposed to some sort of that. Right. And that's just not true. I mean, I, I work in the liberal arts college and I have a, uh, mounted full mounted black bear hanging behind me right now in my office. Right. (laughs) And And so you can imagine the looks that I get from some people that come in here and see that bear. Right. But I've had some of the best conversations about, um, wildlife conservation and hunting, because of that right um i mean some people don't even understand that you that that black bears are hunted and why they're hunted right, right. like they don't they like they ask me they one they don't even think it's real and then two <laughs> is that legal like right so i mean like that's that's kind of you know not i'm not making fun but that's like we you know i, I think for me that's my duty right so, oh absolutely to just say like you know hey like i mean there's i'm there's parts of other people's lives in this country that I don't understand at all. Right. But like, this is a piece that I, you know, I grew up in I could shed some light on. Right. And help you kind of understand, you know, why I hunt and why I think that it's, you know, why hunting is conservation and why all that's important. Um, So it's, you know, I think I've had some fantastic conversations because of just that bear hanging up behind my office and, you know, talking about some of those points and just, you know, not, you know, I think it's the way in the way you approach it, right? Um and also I'm having these conversations with people that um I'm meeting face to face, right? And I think, you know, social media to the bad parts of social media right. is it's really kinda, you know, um, not done us any justice is you know, we can't sit down and um you know, talk to people anymore, right? Yeah. So everything becomes you know, um, you can't read body language. You can't. You, know, you lose a lot of you the really context. Get, get intense. Yeah, you lose a lot of the context, right? And I think that's not maybe the best approach for, well, for a lot of things, but um, for, especially for, for conservation and, and hunting in general, right? It's pretty fraught.
1: Yeah. And I think the biggest thing when having those conversations is making sure, you know, both people come to the table with an open mind, right? I mean, to, 100%. You know, because even. Though we have our our thoughts and and our views and our feelings on on hunting and conservation, um, it doesn't do us any good not to hear why someone else is maybe opposed to hunting or maybe they're just indifferent about hunting because they don't, you know, they've never been exposed to it. They don't understand, um, you know, the importance of it. so. I mean, that only that doesn't apply just to, to hunting. I mean, that applies to life in general, right, is is having an open exactly. mind, being, yeah. you know, tolerant of, of other people's views and opinions and just trying to 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 learn and understand. Because at the end of the day, if, if two adults can have a conversation with differing opinions and viewpoints and, you know, walk away at the end saying, you know, nice talking to you. I mean that's that should be the goal in in almost every conversation where there's differing uh, opinions because you don't get anywhere from just trying to tell someone or just you know just hearing someone like you have to listen to them right and you have to be willing to receive that information and not just you know like if like let's say you and I were on this call and you had one opinion on hunting I had a different opinion on it and we're just talking at each other right neither one of us are listening to what they're saying we're just trying to get our points across and we're gonna get nowhere at the end we're gonna be like all right see ya you know and and that's it and because you never know what a year down the road that conversation is gonna what it's gonna trigger and and how they're gonna view something else that happens with them because of of that conversation and it's it's unfortunate that more people don't take that approach especially in this day and age
2: yeah yeah and i you know i agree a hundred percent and i think um I mean, I get it. Right. I understand. I can see people's hesitation with hunting. Right. Like I, I, I can definitely, I can see that side. Right. But I think you're right. Sitting down like and me just telling my experiences. Right. And like why I do it and why, you know, and, and, um, you know, the, the positives that I've seen come out of it. Right. I think is, um, and not, you're right. And to the point, not talking at people. Right. Um, talking with him um, it's been yeah I mean I you know I just the the barrel on my wall has been um, has sparked some of the best conversations I've had in a long time around this topic uh, which I think is hilarious
1: yeah but it's a great thing Um, anytime you anytime you have the conversation I mean that's that's the first step in the right direction
2: yeah yeah
1: (sighs) Justin we've been at it for over an hour here Um, it's been great yeah, no, I've, I've certainly uh, enjoyed this. Um, this has been um, one, of my, one of my favorite conversations that I've had in recent memory, so thank you. Uh, before I let you get out of here, though, where can people find you, and where can people find uh, Farther Afield at?
2: Yeah, so um, I'm on Instagram at um, Farther Afield Design, and also at Justin Madrin, um, if you want to follow my bird hunting adventures. <laughs> um, but then you can also check out my website site at Farther
1: Awesome. Well, Justin, thank you again for joining me today. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to talking to you again uh, here in the future. Thanks, Marcus. It's been great. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. All right. Well, a big thank you again to Justin for joining me on the podcast this week. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, uh, Stone Glacier, Wild Rivers Coffee, Go Hunt, as well as Outdoor Class, and 2% for Conservation. Uh, Do me a favor. Please be sure to go out and support the brands that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, And if you would like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you're going to see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be only uh, positive conservation-driven content that's landing in your feeds there. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks again for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you uh, liked the episode with Justin. Be sure to check out the average uh catch up on all your latest uh on all the latest podcast episodes as well as uh you know pick up some merchandise to help support conservation um in the process and uh if you can definitely be sure to uh subscribe and rate the podcast wherever uh, you guys listen i would really appreciate that so um until next week uh actually before that Have a safe and happy 4th of July. Uh, I hope everyone gets to spend some time outdoors, spend some time with friends and family, and uh, really just uh, have yourself a good time. So, as always, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you.